Well, good morning. Really is good to see you guys here. Welcome online as well. And as Rebecca mentioned a moment ago, we are beginning today this new study called On the Road. And if you don't have one of these yet, you can get one. And you just go out to the lobby afterwards, fill out that worship guide. There are three to 4,000 people that are already going through it. Get one and gather with some people that you want to journey with and unpack it. What this study is based on, the reason we're calling it on the road is it's referring to the road of Emmaus, but it's also on the road of our journeys, and it's a double meaning. And so today we're going to kick that off by starting into this story, and then we'll build on that each week. I uh, serve on a board of a ministry that's headquartered in New York City, and I, I get to New York several times a year and love going there, There's a lot of things to do. Uh, one of my passions and loves is music, and you know, New York's kind of like a giant urban iPod, and you can get about whatever kind of music, whatever kind of concert you want, whatever you want. One of my deals is jazz, really good classic jazz, and there are a couple of clubs that I visit more often than any of the others. And one of them is called the Village Vanguard. It's in the West Village. It's in a little basement. You, you, all the press about it would make you think it's this enormous thing. And it's really more of a hole in the wall building, but it has got character unending. I mean, it's just, it, it, the vibe in there is great. It, the Village Vanguard's been around many, many years. It's kind of like a kingmaker in jazz circles. You make it at the Village Vanguard, you're on your way. But to go in, you head down this steep, narrow stairway and you think, I must have taken a wrong turn somewhere. But you come down and it's this low ceiling, very intimate environment. And as with, as, as with the case with a lot of the jazz clubs there, you, you th usually know who's going to be performing because they're billed ahead of time, but sometimes you get a surprise. Maybe a, a famous jazz musician's in town and they call them up and say, I'm available, and they say, hey, come. So a couple of times I've gotten a surprise like that, but I can't go down those stairs and head into the Village Vanguard without thinking of a story that happened several years ago. David Haydu, he's a journalist, a music critic. He is with The Nation, he's the music editor of The Nation, was with New Republic, he's a, a journalism professor as well. He tells of a time he went to the Village Vanguard and he got there just a little late and he came in during the first song, so they'd already done the introductions. It was a band that was led by Charles McPherson, a brilliant alto saxophonist, and Haydu came down the stairs and just slipped in the back row right next to the door and started looking, his eyes are adjusting to the dark. And uh, during that first song, he, uh, the, a, trumpet, a trumpeter caught his eye off to the side of the stage. He was up there, he didn't have any light on him, he was kind of turned to the side, but Haydu said he looks really familiar. He kept staring at him. And then the second song, uh, McPherson had this trumpet guy come to center stage and do a, just a little bit of a solo. And Haydu said, oh my word, is that Wynton Marsalis? Now, if you're a jazz person, you know who Wynton Marsalis is, one of the greatest jazz trumpets of all time. He turned to the guy next to him, David did, and he, he said, is that Wynton Marsalis? This was a stranger. And the guy looked at him like, and he said, I highly doubt it. Because he hadn't been billed, nobody had said he was there. It's the middle of the week in August, dog days of summer. But on the fourth song, it was an entire, the entire song was a trumpet solo. And sure enough, it was Wynton Marsalis, the great jazz trumpet. And that became clear very quickly as he began to interpret this song. It was a 1930s ballad 
called I Don't Stand a Ghost of a Chance with You. And he went through it brilliantly and all the chatter and clinking glasses stopped because they saw genius on display. And he was building up to this final crescendo at the song where that chorus, I don't stand a ghost of a chance with you. And he was stringing it out, almost trumpeting the words, you know, almost just make out the words, hey, do set. He was writing about this in the Atlantic a little bit later. He got to that last crescendo, I don't stand a ghost of a chance. And right before he got to that, that, that climactic moment, a cell phone went off. Just one of those obnoxious little tunes. You, you remember them. Now we've got all sorts of variety back then. There weren't. You know what happens? The person first freezes thinking maybe nobody will notice, you know, if it's their phone. But then you always notice. So the person picked up their phones looking and just hustles out. There was an audible groan throughout the club. People started chattering, smirking, giggling, glasses started clinking. Winston Marsalis arched his eyebrows. He couldn't believe it. Nobody else could. And David Haydu, ever the journalist, he wrote in his critic's notepad, he said in capital letters, magic ruined. Do you know what that's like? For the magic to be ruined in your journey? Things are going well, then something happens. Maybe at work, maybe the magic gets ruined in a relationship with your coworkers or boss or a financial crisis or maybe news from a doctor about your health or somebody that you care deeply about. The list goes on and on. And some of you are right in the middle of the magic being ruined right now. Maybe nobody else knows. Others of you are in a pretty smooth sailing part, so I'm here to encourage you. The magic will get ruined fairly soon. So <laughs> it just should help you. And I say that not to be pessimistic, but it's, it's a reality. You and I live in a fallen world where the magic gets ruined regularly. Things are going along and then something unexpected interrupts it, dashes our hopes. That's what was happening in this passage that we're going to dive into. If you've got your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 24. The magic had been ruined for the disciples and two of Christ's followers are processing it. Now, this incident that we're about to read about in Luke's gospel happened on Sunday, the day that Christ was risen. But these two guys don't know that Jesus has been risen. All they know is that the magic was ruined on Friday in the crucifixion, and they're devastated. The incident happens on a Sunday. Listen, it happens on a Sunday on that Sunday, but, there, but it really is more of a Saturday-like situation before they know about the resurrection. It's kind of after the magic's ruined on Friday, but before you enter to the, the renewal and the resurrection of Sunday, we're, we're dealing with that in-between time, and that's our journeys. We're always trying to figure out how to apply Sunday to our Saturday stuff, and that's what this is about. Start reading with me, Luke chapter 24, verse 13. Now, that same day, Two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, 
Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But, very important, they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem? It's kind of like, his, he says, pick up the clue phone, basically. He said, are you, really? Are, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem that does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? Jesus asked. Uh, well, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death. They crucified him. But we had hoped, that's the language of the magic being ruined, by the way. We had hoped. We're not hoping now. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they didn't see Jesus. How do you and I deal with disappointment? How do we process the magic being ruined? For most of us, we prefer that our preferable remedy is for the magic to be restored. We'd rather the magic never get ruined. In fact, a lot of us uh, adopt some kind of a weird theology that says, if I can get uh, everything just right, my, my, the right formula, my quiet time just right, going to church in the right number of times, uh, Bible study, etc., the, the more I can, uh, I, I, I can get it all down pat, maybe the less trouble I'll experience. Maybe that's the solution, just to have as little trouble as possible. Isn't that what the gospel is supposed to do? Isn't it supposed to shield us, to protect us, kind of insulate us from bad things? Jesus couldn't have been more clear. John 16, verse 33. He says, in this world, you will have trouble. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Now, what do you think he means by, in this world you will have trouble? I think he means you will have trouble. And amazing how we miss that. See, the hope of the gospel is not being exempted from trouble. The hope of the gospel is being able to take heart because he's overcome the world. So he invites us in to say, you got to engage with the trouble but you need to engage with it authentically in order for who I am to become real. Here's where I go with trouble. This is where I go when the magic is ruined. You probably go to similar places. We're tempted to do this. It happens regularly. We'll say things like in the midst of whatever you're dealing with right now. We're tempted to say, if, uh, depending on how bad it is, we'll say, well, he isn't here. Jesus isn't here in the midst of this. We'll say he's unaware of what, what I'm going through. We'll say he doesn't care. We'll say he, he won't intervene. 
And those kind of things we keep rehearsing and over and over because that is the posture of my heart most naturally when the magic gets ruined. I've got some coins in my pocket. You guys know that spiritual gift I have, don't you, of being able to clarify the obvious? So here we go, I'm gonna keep doing it. A coin has two sides, pretty deep, huh? Let's say each one of these coins has that default posture of the magic being ruined. And this, on, on heads of this, this coin, he's not here. Heads of this one, he's unaware. Heads of this one, he doesn't care. Heads on this one, he will not intervene in this. It's hopeless. Yes, I'm to authentically engage with them and yeah, engage with those postures. He's not thrown off by that. But the magic being ruined in our lives, navigating through a fallen world requires that we deal with the tension, the mystery of not being exempted from trouble, but in the midst of it, to engage with who he is as the resurrected Christ. So what we're going to do is look at the flip side of each of these coins. And when I'm in the midst of a magic having been ruined moment, I have to deal with the tension between both sides of this coin. And it's really a choice, a moment by moment choice. It's not a one time thing. Here's the first one. It's the tension between, okay, on this side of the coin, me saying, he's not here. I'm all alone in the midst of this. But on the other side of the coin is his resurrection. I'm not going to be able, I've got to do one or the other, but I've got to deal with the tension and bring the tension to the forefront to say, when I'm feeling like he's not here, I've got to remember that he's risen. Go back to the text. Look at verse 16. He says, but, verse, but they were kept from recognizing him. Now, that does not mean that they, it, it doesn't say they didn't recognize him, that maybe it was cloudy or dusty or there are, the Greek word that's used there is a word that involves Christ's leader. It's referring to him intentionally preventing them from recognizing. Why? Why did he keep them from recognizing? And I, I think years later, as they looked back on this event and told others, which they did, which is how we have the record of it through Luke, is what Jesus was doing is moving in, them into the graduating class of the resurrection community of where they were no longer dependent on Jesus needing to be physically present with them in order to know that he was with them. In fact, the, the same upper room discourse where he said in this world you'll have trouble, he also said, I'm going to go in order that my spirit can come. I'm not going to leave you as orphans, he said. I will be with you, but I, instead of me con being confined to, uh, in time and space to one human body where I can be with you, but I can't be with you, he says, my spirit will be with all of you. I will be with you. And so he's, he's moving them in to being able to understand what is said throughout Scripture in terms of the omnipresence of who God is, regardless of what we're dealing with. Psalm 139, verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, you're there. 
Even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day. For darkness is as light to you. So in the midst of that moment where I'm tempted very strongly to say, this is a mess and God's not here. That's when to deal with the tension of turning that coin and saying, but he is risen. And because he's risen, he is here. Let me ask you a question. If any of you, if any of you ever, have you ever cried alone? Men, I'll change the question with you. Have any of you men ever thought about crying alone? Because I know you don't cry. <laughs> ever cried alone? No, you haven't. We've never cried alone. Here's why. Psalm 56, verse 8. It says, you have kept count of my tossings. When the magic gets ruined, we toss and turn. We, there's, a, there's an angst, a restlessness. He says, you keep count of my tossings. Every toss he pays attention to. In fact, you put my tears in your bottle. He has been collecting your tears your whole life. How does he do that? Because he's here. In his resurrection power, he has come through his spirit to be present. But that's just one of the points of tension I have to deal with. Here's the next one. Not only is there that temptation to think he's not here and I've got to counter that while simultaneously grappling with his resurrection. The second coin I want to say, you guys know what this is like in the midst of some of the difficulty. I want to say, he's unaware. He really doesn't know what's going on. That has to be countered by the other side of the coin, which is his wisdom. His wisdom that knows no limit. Go back to the text. Verse 17, he asked them, so what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. All right, question. Is he asking, this is Jesus, is he asking them for information's sake? Is he asking because he doesn't know? Of course not. Psalm 147, verse 5. Great is our Lord and mighty in power, and his understanding only has a couple of limits here and there. No, it has no limit. I love the story of this, 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 this Christian school in the cafeteria. They had the counter laid out for lunch one day, and at this end where the kids started, there's a big, huge um, container of apples, fresh, you know, red, delicious apples. And the teacher, one of the teachers put a sign right underneath the apples, only take one apple, God is watching. Down on the, other end of the, on the other end of the counter, there's this huge platter of chocolate chip cookies. And a little boy wrote up a sign and put it in front of the cookies. Take all the cookies you want, God's watching the apples. <laughs> and don't you feel like that sometime? Okay, I know God knows about a lot of stuff, but he doesn't know about this. He doesn't know what I'm going through. 
And that temptation to only stare at this side of the coin says he's unaware requires deliberately turning it in light of the fact that his wisdom knows no limit. Go back to the same text in Psalm 139 I read from a moment ago. Look at the previous verses starting with verse 1. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways before a word is on my tongue. You, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is, it's too wonderful for me. It's too lofty for me to attain. So why did he ask them? Why did Jesus ask them, what are you discussing? Is it because they, he, he wanted to know he, that he didn't have the information? Had nothing to do with that. He was asking them what was going on to get them to process out loud in an authentic way. And very rarely do we. A lot of times our prayers are not honest enough. This past week I lied. Just thought I'd go ahead and get it out there, which I do just about every week. In different contexts, this is how it happened. I had just finished, it's a Mr. Grappling with a, a disappointment, really a, a magic ruined scenario with a close friend whom I love and care about. And, and I was, it was heavy on my heart. I went to a cafe. I was sitting there alone, and the waiter came up and said, how are you doing today? What did I say? Fine. Doing good. I mean, it, and I was, I was aware at that moment, I am lying through my teeth. Now, yeah, and obviously, it's, you, you can't, I, I'm not going to say, oh, you have no idea. S sit down here. I, I've got to <laughs> tell you. So it's not the right, but we carry that posture into our prayer lives and thinking, you know what, I think I just always need to talk about all the, all the good stuff and everything's great. No, Jesus wants to enter in and grapple with us. He knows we're in the midst of trouble. And if we're feeling that he's unaware, tell him. He wants to hear. That's what a lot of the Psalms are anyway. Psalms of lament, of saying, how long do you understand what's happening here? So it's embracing that tension where I'm going back and forth in his presence, feeling that he's unaware, but having to grapple with his wisdom that knows no limit. But there's a third coin. It's not just that the flip side of, is he here, the resurrection, the flip side of, is he, una is he unaware, his, his wisdom. Here's this next coin. I'm, I, I'm, I'm often tempted to, this is where we go in the midst of the magic being ruined, to say, he doesn't care. Not only is, is he not here and he's unaware, he doesn't, he doesn't care. We feel that. And there's a tension though, we've got to deliberately engage with it because the flip side of that is his love. And his love prevents any uncaring posture. Go back to this. I love what happens, right? So Jesus has said, what are you discussing? And they said, all the things that have been happening. In verse 19, he says, what things? 
What things? Do you hear what he's doing there? He didn't just, he just, he wasn't playing games with them. He was really wanting to draw them out. So first, yes, he asked them to start discussing what, what's going on. But they don't go deep enough. And he is demonstrating great care for their heart and the angst that they're going through by saying what things. And he's drawing them out more. Let's talk this through. That is love. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. He says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us. That we should be called children of God, and that's what we are. I love that. The, a couple of words there. The word great is the Greek word potapos. It means basically get a load of this. You're not going to believe the, the depth, the height, the breadth of his love. And then he underscores that by saying, and he's lavished it on us. And we say, well, how does he demonstrate that? John, the very next chapter, says, 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You and I have been loved and the visible, historical, validated demonstration of that love occurred on the cross. And if I ever have a doubt in those moments, does God love me right now? Does he even care? I go back to the cross. And it wasn't just a sympathizer wanting to die uh, to, in my place. He was accomplishing exactly what he said he was going to accomplish on the cross. That's validated in the resurrection. And therefore, 1 Peter chapter 5 comes true. Verse 7, so cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Isaiah 54 verse 10, though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love, what do you think he means by unfailing? Huh? I think he means unfailing will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. In the midst of me wondering, does he care to engage with attention on the other side of that corn, that he actually loves me deeply with a potapus love. Remember the story of Lazarus, Jesus' good friend. Lazarus died. Jesus is about to raise him from the dead. But you ready to memorize a scripture verse? You guys ready? We're going to memorize one right here. Jesus wept. Go ahead and say it. Jesus wept. There you go. It's one of the shortest verses in the Bible, right there. Why was he weeping? He knew he was about to raise him from the dead. He was weeping because he was engaging with the fallenness. The fallenness of a world that he had come to remedy, but he's, he's beholding its impact on a deep, intimate, personal, human level, and he's weeping. What did everybody say about Jesus? When they saw him weeping, they said, see how he loved him. I don't know what magic has been ruined in your life. But he says, see how he loved him. See how he loved him. Let's look at one other coin. It's not just this coin of is he here, 
and meaning to turn it over and see that he's risen. It's not just a coin that's looking at the fact that, you know, I think he's unaware and we need to turn it over and grasp with his wisdom. It's not just this coin of wondering, does he care and turning over and engaging with his love. But here's a big one. Will he intervene? Will you do something, God? You read some of the Psalms, and the psalmist is crying out, are you not going to do anything right now in the midst of the magic being ruined? And I need to engage with it. I need to engage with it authentically, not hold anything back. But at the same time, he invites me to engage with the flip side of that coin, and it's this. It's power. Go back to the text. Verse 21. But we had hoped. That is the language of magic being ruined. You were hoping, weren't you, and it didn't happen. And so we give up. And we think God's not going to intervene now. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. So when I turn this coin over and I look at his power, what is it that his power accomplishes for you and me in the midst of our ruined magic moments? What is it? A lot of us would say, top of the list, well, the kind of power I demonstrated is for him to straighten it all up. Fix it. Can he do that? Absolutely. Does he? Sometimes. But that's only one option of how his power comes into our pain, making it go away. Here's another option. Another way his power is demonstrated to us in the midst of our trouble, and it's this. His power comes and uses the difficulty for a purpose way beyond anything I could ever hope, dream, or imagine. In other words, in his sovereign grace, he wrestles this fall. He's not the author of sin, but he takes it and he wrestles it and brings something beautiful from it. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. For we know that in all things, God works for the good. That does not say everything is good. Just says in all things, God will take and he'll work for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. You know, I, I didn't tell you guys the end of the story, actually, about Wynton Marsalis. Let's pick it up where I left off. Marsalis is brilliantly coming to that close of the song trumpeting out those words, I don't stand a ghost of a chance. And then the cell phone goes off. Hey, do rights, magic ruined. Everybody starts chuckling, starts talking, glasses started clinking again. But hey, do said that Wynton Marsalis in that moment arched his eyebrows, but he did not take the trumpet away from his lips. He just followed with his eyes the person who had the chirping cell phone. And right as they were leaving, Marsalis played on his trumpet the identical tune of the cell phone. <laughs> Same key. 
same rhythm. And then he repeated it with a little bit more intonation. Then he repeated it, adding a couple of other notes. The chattering stopped again. The glasses stopped clinking. People started watching and beholding something powerful. He kept playing that cell phone little ditty tune over and over, making it more and more complicated, changing the keys to eventually arriving in the same key of the song that he had just been playing, and then tied that cell phone's tune into becoming a part of I don't stand a ghost of a chance, coming back to the point where all of a sudden he left the cell phone tune, was back in what was that original song. And you know what had happened? The melody might have been ruined, but the song was not ruined. In fact, what he did is he culminated, don't stand a ghost of a chance with you, and the place erupted. Why? They probably erupted more than they would have before, and you know why? Because beauty from ashes is better than mere beauty. And that's the hope of the gospel. That he comes and he takes that crooked and he makes it straight. And we say, are you not going to intervene? And we, we think intervening means his power is going to eliminate the difficulty. Sometimes it does, but often his power comes and takes that which is awful and brings beauty from the ashes. But there's one other way his power comes into our difficulty and it's this. He gives us strength to deal with the difficulty and stay in the midst of it. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 17. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls. These are people, this is an agrarian culture. This is devastating. He says, yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. That doesn't necessarily mean smile. It can, I can rejoice. I can be joyful, biblically speaking, even with tears in my eyes. I will rejoice in the Lord. I'll be joyful in God, my Savior. And now here's how he, he says, here's why. The sovereign Lord is my strength and he makes my feet like the feet of a deer and he enables me to tread on the heights. He says, I will be joyful in the midst of all of this difficulty because he's giving me the feet of a deer. My friend Ray Vanderlein years ago uh, walked me through this in Israel. We're looking at these paths that deer have been on in the terrain. And I live out in Colorado some of the time and I watch mountain goats. They go up unthinkably difficult terrain as if it's nothing. That's what the, 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 the prophet is saying there. God is giving me the feet of a deer. See, here's how we'd like his power to be manifest in our difficulty, to, to straighten and level my path out. And sometimes he'll do that. But often, instead of giving me a path that's suitable for my feet, he instead gives me feet that's suitable for this path. He says, I'm not going to change the path, but I'm going to give you the feet of a deer. And let your power be made manifest. A lot, a lot of you have heard of a great hymn called, It Is Well With My Soul. And some of you might know the background of the hymn, but others of you might not. It was written by Horatio Spafford back in 1873. 
Horatio Spafford was a prominent businessman in Chicago. He was a, an encourager, supporter, associate of D.L. Moody, supported his ministry. Spafford was with one of the leading law firms in Chicago. He also was heavily invested in real estate and helping develop downtown Chicago. So when the great Chicago fire happened in 1871, he lost a fortune. A year later, his youngest son, four-year-old son, died of scarlet fever. The next year, just to give his family a break, they decided to take a holiday in England. D.L. Moody was going to be preaching in England, and they said, let's go over and we can connect with him. The day of departure happened in mid-November of 1873, and right before they were due to leave, the day before, some business emergencies happened, and Spafford couldn't go. He was going to have to delay his trip three or four days, but he told his wife, Anna, to go with their four daughters. Annie, who was 11, Maggie, who was nine, Bessie, who was five, and Tanetta, who was two. And so Anna left with her four daughters, and they set sail on the Ville du Havre, an ocean liner. On the night of November the 22nd, 1873, the Ville du Havre was, was rammed by accident by a, a cargo ship. It sank in 12 minutes. Almost 300 people died. And among those 300 people were four young girls, all four of their daughters. A sailor going through the rubble found Anna holding on to some debris, brought her in. Four days later, she arrived in England and telegraphed her husband something that she never could even conceive of saying. I alone was saved. Spafford dropped everything he was doing, took the next ship, told the captain of the accident, and of course the captain knew about it. He said, sir, I would like you, whatever time it is, even if it's the middle of the night, please wake me when we sail over the place where the Ville du Havre sunk. I just want to know I'm above the place where my daughters went home to be with Jesus. The captain woke him up in the middle of the night. Horatio Spafford got up, stared out into the blackness, and then proceeded to write a poem that was later put to music. Take a look at the words. He said, when, when peace like a river attendeth my way, or when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it's well, it's well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet and though trials should come, that let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. It is well, it's well with my soul. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Uh, praise the Lord, praise 
the Lord, O my soul. It's well. It is well with my soul. And Lord, haste the day. when my faith shall be sight, and the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, and the trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend, even so, it is well with my soul. Was he saying it's good? The situation? No. It's horrific. And we're never asked to say otherwise. But he was saying, you're giving me the feet of a deer in the midst of the magic being ruined. We're going to take some time now to process in his presence as a community. I want you to engage. Don't just watch. Engage in worship regardless of what desert you're in. And sure, Every one of those coins, go ahead and embrace your questions. Is he here? Is he unaware? Does he not care? Is he not going to intervene? But in the midst of the worship, may he by his grace enable us to deal with the tension of also knowing he's risen, he's wisdom, he is love, and he is power. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, give us the courage not to try to tie a little bow on something that's awful. You never ask us to do that. But what you do ask us to do is to see that you're risen and to know that you're going to give us what we need for today. That you're with us, you're all wise, you're all loving, and you powerfully can give us what we need to get home. Would you inhabit our worship right now? May it not just be singing songs. But may it be grappling with the magic that may have been ruined in our life, but grappling with it in light of the reality that you, King Jesus, are risen and you are enough.